Assalamu alaikum everybody, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, and welcome to another amazing Tuesday session. I'm so excited um, to get the last bit of um, Surah Hud, which was so beautiful and powerful um, and, and truly life-changing. Um, you know, I, I'm always struck by um, just, I guess, the advancement of knowledge and the power of the advancement of knowledge. We, we recently had some um, friends that we connected with um, who wanted to bring their friends and kind of introduce um, introduce them to their friends to the sheikh? And it was very interesting because it was sort of said like we're going to go see our sheikh. And in this Islamophobic age, that like stirs a lot of emotions. And interestingly, this was even like among Muslim, you know, a Muslim family. Like the idea that, oh, you know, my child is gonna go see a sheikh, that's very scary, even though I am Muslim and, you know, this is supposed to be a scholar. And it gives you a sense of the, um, you know, the far reaches of Islamophobia. And another friend who was in the same group was not Muslim um, and, you know, came to the group because um, she was very, you know, connected to a lot of Muslim friends and found a lot of beauty. Um, and again, coming from another angle, it's like, oh, we're gonna go visit like a religious scholar, a sheikh, oh, that's really scary, I can't tell my parents because that's something that, you know, could make them very nervous. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, they, after we spent a lot of time with them and really enjoyed ourselves and laughed and, you know, had just a really beautiful bonding experience, it was like sort of sad because, you know, you, you have to, like, they couldn't be honest about coming and meeting a sheikh and having a beautiful time um, because how can you understand that, you know? And a lot of our conversations were just about very, you know, normal, beautiful things. Um, there were, you know, questions about, you know, problems that confront, you know, typical, um, you know, issues with um, life and Islamophobia and, uh, you know, and even like how to find your spiritual path and how to feel proud and good about being Muslim. Um, and how do you, how do you even talk about um, Islam, you know, in a way that is not threatening to people who just don't understand. And, you know, in this space, because we've learned so much and we've advanced so much, um, it's sometimes really sad when you just want to reach out and go, gosh, if you only could understand, like, you know, everything we talk about here, is everything that would make you feel comfortable and happy and peaceful and you know loving, and that that's exactly what um, you know Muslims um, are supposed to be about. And yet, it seems that the perceptions have grown you know so far. It's like the being Muslim would be, or Islam would be, like the last place you would search for finding peace and beauty and meaning in in your life. Um, and you know, there um, it's. It, I, I hope that people will. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm grateful because I continue to get messages from people that are like stunning and very, um, you know, like, thank you so much, you saved my faith, you helped me, you know, with finding, um, you know, I just converted and, uh, you know, I didn't know how to navigate, you know, all this incredible, you know, like Islam in America and I came across your videos and they've been so transformative and, you know, people just have like so much excitement once they discover us and so I, I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Um, and so I, I pray that, that you know, people will continue to spread the word because there's no better way to fight Islamophobia from, you know, like from non-Muslims and from Muslims, um, except through knowledge and except through understanding that 
um, you know, the whole point of God's message to us is finding, you know, leaving darkness and finding light. And that's something that um, doesn't matter your label, it doesn't matter, you know, your, your background, your ethnicity, your, your financial status, your social status. It's something so human that brings us all together. Um, and, you know, um, I thought with that I would share a couple, like just a, a nugget of, you know, I'm, I'm trying to remember like a lot of the little lessons that I learned from the professor along the way, things that I had never heard that I thought were just so incredibly beautiful. Um, one, one thing that I was reminded of is um, the idea of gift giving. And um, once Sheikh was in Egypt um, many, many years ago, obviously I think people know that he can't go there now, but um, it used to be that he would go and the, um, the booksellers would literally like line up out the door and want to show him like what books were available because they knew that, okay, you know, Dr. Wolfuddle is in town and so um, he loves books and, and we, you know, want to share with him some of the really valuable things. So this man came to the apartment and had lugged so many boxes of books. It was not easy to carry like, you know, these really heavy boxes. And he, he came and said, um, and you know, the sheikh was like, thank you so much, I'm really excited to see what you have. And he was like, no, thank you, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to, you know, bring you something that could actually, you know, bring me blessing. And, you know, it was like a very interesting, like, like I didn't, had never thought of it in that way. It's like, okay. It's not that I'm giving you a gift um, because I'm trying to make you, you know, happy or help you, but actually, if I can help you, then you've given me the opportunity and the the, the blessing, um, you know, the opportunity to earn blessings by doing something kind for you. And I thought that that was just so beautiful and so different than how I ever, you know, understood that ethic here, you know, in America. Um, and I guess I the, you know, it. it is something that I've like, tried to share in different ways with, with people. Um, and the other little good thing I wanted to just share, I, I got a really beautiful gift last night, and maybe I've talked about this before, um, but it was something very unexpected. Like I, I helped someone to, to learn how to pray, and they um, were really touched by an introduction I'd given a long time ago about like how I believed every person um, has a beautiful soul that is like, you know, I used an analogy to a Fabergé egg. It's like something very beautiful, unique, delicate, something to be protected, um, something that is, you know, that holds kind of the perfection of like God's breath, you know, and that we have to, in our, in our life, protect that. And sometimes over the, the course of life, trauma or, you know, different experiences um, come and break that Fabergé egg. And, you know, part of our job in healing is, is healing our soul and healing that egg. So when, when I um, got to know her and, and you know, we, we spent a lot of time praying together and, you know, I tried to teach her how to pray, um, she, we finally reached the point where it was like, okay, blast off day. From this point forward, you're ready. You're going to pray five prayers a day. And she said, okay, I'm, I promise God I'm going to do that. And so she's coming up on her one-year anniversary. As a thank you present, she was because she was moved by that, she sent me a Fabergé egg, and now she sent me a second one. This is the second, she sent me one for like the first, like blast off birthday, we call it the, the rebirth day. And then now we're coming up on her anniversary and she sent me another one. And so she said, thank you so much. You know, she's sending me a, a, a present to say, thank you for teaching me to pray. And I said, no, 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 no. 
thank you for giving me the opportunity to have the blessing of teaching you to pray because now every time she prays <coughs> or if she teaches her children to pray, um, this is something she didn't know how to do before and I will have a share of that blessing and that is something that is just priceless, something that, you know, I mean, it was so little, for what little effort that I did, I'm, I, I'm so grateful I had the opportunity to do that and I understand that that will be hopefully, inshallah, to my credit, and I pray that she'll keep up those prayers. Um, but, you know, it's just like a really beautiful way to think about how to give to others and how to provide service and, um, you know, and, and switch, like, sort of what uh, oftentimes people think is like, oh, I don't have time, you know, I don't have energy, you know, it's, it's actually a very beautiful Islamic ethic to, to give. Um, but let me say this too, it's not because you want to do it because you're like, okay, you know, I want to earn as much as I can. It's like not a selfish thing, but it's, um, it's just a beautiful way that you can benefit and someone else can benefit. You know, it's, it's just like lovely all around. So, um, you know, hopefully we are striving for, for God's love and God's, um, you know, beauty, not for selfish reasons, but because we just really want to do something beautiful to help another person find their way to God. So. Anyway, just little tidbits, um, and I am so looking forward to, to this knowledge, and you know, like also, I mean, just to extend the analogy, you know, when we learn this, and we, we come across people who are so unfamiliar with the beauty of, of um, Islam and what the Quran has to offer, I feel like it just really arms all of us um, to be better um, advocates for the faith and to better, you know, undermine like the the really evil effect of Islamophobia that that just now has penetrated to such you know minute levels. Um, so, inshallah, may more people find this path and then please share share with others, um, and and hopefully um, we can spread the word. Inshallah. Okay. <gasps> you spilled. Okay, that's good. That means. <laughs> It's going to be a great halakha, inshallah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahirrabbilalameen. Subhanallah al-Azim. wa barik ala Muhammad. al-Nabiyyu al-Amin. الأطهار الميامين وعلى أصحابه الطيبين وعلى من اتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم يا علي عظيم اللهم لا تكلفنا إلا وسعنا اللهم لا تؤاخذنا إن نسينا وخطأنا ولا تحمل علينا إسرا كما حملته على الذين من قبلنا اللهم لا تحملنا ما لا طاقة لنا بها وافوا عنا واغفر لنا وارحمنا أنت مولانا فانصرنا قوم الكافرين يا رب اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقى قولي So إن شاء الله we continue with سورة هود and um, we have uh, we have gone some distance in this journey. So, so Surah Hud starts out with the foundational principle, which is a principle. If you 
reflect on it even at the most superficial level a foundational principle of justice that people would be treated according to their merit and that each will be treated according to what they've presented. And Surat Hud begins out with that and it reminds us of sort of a, a similar stand with Surat Yunus which decisively talks about those who stand on a firm footing with Allah. And as we've talked about in Surah Yunus, those who stand on a firm footing are those who take moral responsibility for themselves, ethical responsibility for themselves, and have a clear understanding of their purpose, the reason for their existence, anchored in Allah. Now, so Surah would, after r reminding us of this foundational principle that people would be treated per their merit, and again, I underscore not their gender, not their race, not their ethnicity, not their wealth, not their, it is in, in we, we just often read it and not reflect on it. But just these few words, are enough to, to be a philosophical and ethical revolution. Because in order to achieve that, if you attempt to achieve that in, in, in our life on earth, uh, then you would have to do everything that would lead to that ethical goal. And everything that would lead to that ethical goal would in itself have to be ethically calibrated. A goal like that cannot be reached through unethical means. And then as we talked about, the Qur'an then starts out with the narratives of prophets that are familiar to us, but this time it does not talk about Prophet Yunus, whose people actually changed themselves despite their prophet despairing in them, but in fact they changed themselves. In, but in Surah Hud, it talks about prophets that have had a very different fate with their people. And as we said that Prophet Nuh is a long drawn out um, struggle over principles. His people want him to compromise. And they say, we, we might have common grounds with you if you get rid of some of the riffraff that 
um, you hang out with. Um, his people say, we notice that only those who are poor seem to follow you, and those who don't have prestige in society seem to follow you. And we can never forget that according to the Quran, Prophet Nuh is engaged in this um, in this process for centuries, generation after generation, with the same social and ethical maladies that he confronts, and ultimately it reaches to a point where in Surah Hud, the Quran doesn't emphasize that Nuh is the one that prays to Allah to, to punish his people, but rather that Allah is the one that informs Prophet Nuh that خلاص, the, the, the time is up. And then when it came to Prophet Uhud we notice that Prophet Uhud Again, the, the same dynamics of engaging in his people in what seems to be obvious points of um, uprightness, if you will, righteousness. So, and ultimately, prophethood tells his people and which is significant for us, as we as we said, that all, I am not going to compromise, and I'm not going to let go of this message, and I am not going to do anything to accommodate your discomfort with the truth, and. If it is the case that you need to hurt me, go ahead and do so. That, you know, go ahead and do whatever you need to do. But there's, as we said, there's another important thing with the narrative about prophethood in particular is that prophethood reminds his people of the concept of istikhlaf, that if you are not on the moral ethical path, Allah will remove you and replace you with another. Now this becomes a very core concept and in the Quran, but as we will see in Surah Hud in particular, that the Allah Sunnah, although a lot of people go the wrong way, although a lot of people go down the wrong path, Allah Sunnah is that eventually, after Allah tolerates and gives people ample opportunity to correct their course and change themselves, eventually the ch their chances run out, run out and when the time comes 
they are replaced by a, a new cycle with a new opportunity. Now, we encountered with Prophet Ibrahim and Luke, Ibrahim's remarkable generosity of soul. He's a, as the Quran des, describes him as a web, a, a very gentle soul that is, is constantly pleading for more opportunities. But this is contrasted with the reality that Prophet Lut confronts. And the reality that Prophet Lut confronts are a people that are intent on corruption, determined to do, to act unethically and to act in ways that are very shameful. And then Surah Hud takes us to the Prophet Shu'aib in even a more stark and explicit um, discourse about the forms of ethically problematic behavior. The Quran is always talking about Iman but, and shirk, but what, what does that mean? It does it just mean that you say, I believe in God and that's it? And it makes no difference in the way you live or the way you carry yourself or in the way you do anything? And Surah Hud answers this question in the most decisive way. That's not the case at all. Because in the case of the people of Shaib, they are, they're, the, uh, their commercial practices are exploitative and dishonest. And we even come to a rather more uncomfortable picture in that they see this as their money and they have a freedom, they should have the freedom to do with their property whatever they wish. And if they exploit people's need to sell at very high prices, if they create monopolies to exploit uh, the market, if they hoard products to create shortages. Um, all of this is seen as part of the morality of a free market. And like businessmen, they sort of first appeal to Shaib by saying, you know, you could have been something in this society. But unfortunately, because of your screwed up morals, you're not going to amount to anything. And when Shrive insists, continues to insist that your, your, your conception of morality and conception of freedom 
is flawed, their response is rather stunning. Is that they say, it's like saying, you know, we, we don't even know what you're talking about. We don't, you know, we, we don't even comprehend anything that you have to say. And then this is crowned with the, the Quranic uh, exemplar, the Quranic um, consistent symbol for the worst type of tyranny. And that's the Pharaoh and his people. And it tells us something very important that again is often unfortunately ignored and that Pharaoh will come in the hereafter leading his people to hellfire. So the fact that his people obeyed him is not going to serve as an excuse. And when you say leading his people to hellfire, that begs the moral question, are we just talking about the soldiers who drowned? Or are we talking about every Egyptian that obeyed Pharaoh and refused to rebel against him? Because that is the vast majority. Are we talking about every Egyptian that obeyed Pharaoh and refused to follow Musa because that's the majority. So you're talking about a lot of people. But the image the Quran sets before you is that they are morally culpable. And they, why are they morally culpable? Because they saw what's wrong and they convince themselves that it's okay. That either they don't need to support Musa or they don't need to rebel against the Pharaoh or that they don't need to follow Musa um, And following Musa is, is no, no small deal because it, it means that they would leave their homes and go follow a man in the desert at a time when they didn't know. I mean, as far as they were concerned, Musa was in Egypt for 40 years, preaching, not very successfully, at least among the Egyptians. He had more success among the Israelites. And many of the Egyptians that believed in Musa did, the, did so secretly, and as we saw, Musa comes to the Israelites and Egyptians who believed in him secretly and he says, no, that's not going to work. Confrontation was evil in order to make a point. Because often confrontation was evil if it's in secret, the point fails. Even if the price is self-sacrifice. Even if the price is self-sacrifice. And they didn't know at this point whether, you know, God is going to drown the, the Pharaoh or not. That, that, that wasn't even in, in their, in their play field, in their play, you know, playbook. Um, 
other than just a general trust that God will help us. But as far as many of the Egyptians that did not follow Musa, they thought that in all likelihood, the way this is going to end up is that the Pharaoh will butcher Musa and his followers because the Pharaoh has been butchering people for all these years and no one has stopped him. So why would it be different this time? But that stunning point about superior commands, because no immoral order is possible. It is not possible to create an immoral order, an immoral system, an immoral society, without the existence of a mass of people willing to obey those who command them to do wrong. It is often not that you yourself, it's, not, it's, 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 it's often that it's not that you are evil, but that you are willing to obey someone who's evil. And This is an old, I mean, it didn't, it didn't confront us for the first time in the Holocaust. It didn't confront us in the first time in, in the Nuremberg trials in World War II. When you study international law, often when we start talking about the birth of the field of human rights, we often start with the Nuremberg trials with the fact that they are these officers who receive commands, they carry out the commands, they torture and kill people, they imprison people, and their, their defense in the Nuremberg trials is we were obeying orders. Where we lived in Nazi Germany or fascist Italy or what, what not, that was the law, and we did nothing but obey the law. And what is the whole idea of the Nuremberg trials is that the Nuremberg trials came along and said, well, the law, there is a higher law than the law, and you should have known that the laws that you were obeying are immoral. And so although you obeyed the law in your country, we're still going to punish you. In international law, that is often the, the beginning of our conversations about superior orders, the Geneva Conventions, various human rights conventions, the, more, the obligation of the individual to recognize what is ethical, even if that the superiors of the individual do not recognize what is ethical. We confronted this, of course, again in the Korean War, we confronted it in the Vietnam War, we confronted it in the Gulf War, we confronted it in the Afghani War, we've confronted it in the Iraqi occupation, because repeatedly we had situations where officers carried out commands, or sometimes, rarely, not as common, 
refused to carry out commands that they perceived to be immoral. The same thing, uh, we, we've dealt with the same thing with the Abu Ghraib prison. If you remember, Abu Ghraib was a prison in Iraq. There was mass human rights abuses committed by American soldiers against Iraqi detainees in the Abu Ghraib prison. And most of the American soldiers, when they were put on trial, their defense was, well, our superiors told us, this, okay, that's what we should do. And the critical issue is, well, should you have known better? It, this is critical because we often, as Muslims, because we, 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 we're not good about teaching people about our religion or even studying our religion or presenting our religion or doing anything worthwhile with our religion, um, this is a critical point because that was considered the doctrine of unlawful superior orders, was considered elite in moral theory that was attained so you know all the all the, the the people who talk about how the western civilization is a is a big step forward for humanity and often those who like to talk about how muslims are barbarians and so on one of the things that they often talk about is well the west invented the idea of unlawful superior orders well of course they can't imagine that it is embedded in the Qur'an centuries before that. That the people of the Pharaoh, it will avail them nothing to say, we've obeyed the Pharaoh, although the Pharaoh's commands and orders were immoral and unethical. After the Qur'an, takes us through the narratives of the prophets من أنباء القرى نقصه عليك منها قائم وحصيد وما ظلمناهم ولكن ظلموا أنفسهم فما أغنت عنهم آلهتهم التي يدعون من دون الله من شيء لما جاء أمر ربك وما زادوهم غير تتبيب وكذلك أخذ ربك إذا أخذ القرى وهي ظالمة إن أخذه أليم شديد إن في ذلك لآية لمن خاف عذاب الآخرة ذلك يوم مجموع لهم ناس وذلك يوم مشهود وما نؤخره إلا لأجل معدود So,
the study Quran says these are among the stories we have recounted unto you of the towns among them among the among these towns some remain and some have been destroyed we have not committed an injustice against these towns and this is a, a critical concept but they have been unjust to themselves because in as in 102 this is when, our, when the Quran says, such is the seething, or such is the way that your Lord seizes towns when they are unjust. Surely your Lord's seizing is painful and severe. It's a description of a sunnah. And Sunnah meaning a, a repeated pattern in, in history and in Allah's creation. What dooms towns, meaning nations, people, is their own injustice. And in fact, In, in fact, Surah Hud will, 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 will add to this by, by telling us that, in fact, Allah does not destroy a people if they are just. And this, this will become a, a, a point we'll pause at for, for writing reasons. But, so, the injustice of these towns is what doomed them. And that the way that Allah, and this is a critical concept in Islamic theology, the way that Allah deals with human beings in terms of their historical dynamics is according to the principle of justice, not the principle of privilege. Now, of course, sitting here, if you haven't done a lot of reading, you might say, well, is this such a big deal? Yeah, it's a huge deal. Why is it a huge deal? Because up till then, in religious thought, everywhere in the world. It was an ingrained idea that the way religion works is that you believe and because you believe God privileges you 
not just in the hereafter, but on this earth. So, of course, we had the, the old idea of the chosen people among Jews. In, in various other systems, you make offerings to the God to please the gods, and as a result of the offerings to the God, God, the gods are pleased, you give an offering, whatever the offering is, and as a result, the gods privilege you in your life here now. In Christianity, you accept Jesus Christ, you commit to the church, you offer to the church, the church, remember, the money that the church, the wealth, that the, the, and back then there was no Protestantism, it was just Catholicism. It was all from the money that people would give the church. And because of that, God would privilege you on this earth regardless of anything else so it's not that god will only support you if you are just but god will support you period you're the chosen people god is with you you give your alms to the church god is with you even if you go to you know um, byzantia and massacre tons of Christians and Jews and then go down to Syria and massacre tons of Muslims. It doesn't matter. You, you've, you've, you've paid the church for it. This was, this was an anchored religious doctrine. If you study the history of religions, the idea that God only supports justice or the just was absolutely radical. So radical that a lot of Muslim theologians resisted it. But as I will show you in a, in a second, because you might, because I know, you know, Muslims are so alienated from their tradition, a lot of Muslims on my hear me will say, really? Is that really Islamic? Well, I'll show you in a second, because it's, it's actually really, it's, it's beyond even, I mean, it, it, it is, it, it, it's beyond question. It, it, Allah will not support a Muslim faction that is unjust. So it's not, it's not. And Allah will not destroy a nation if it is just. So the story, now when the Quran tells us this in Ayah 100, this is from 100 to 103 or so. The Quran is alerting us that the purpose of this narrative is to reflect upon the fact of why nations fall and nations rise. Okay.
from 105 to 108, which is a segue to the, the hereafter, there's a only, there's a theological issue that I, I don't want to pause at for long, but if you notice here, it says, um, وَأَمَّا الَّذِينَ سُعْدُوا فَفِي الْجَنَّةِ خَالِدِينَ فِيهَا مَا دَامَتِ السَّمَاوَاتُ وَالْأَرْضِ إِلَّا مَا شَاءَ رَبُّكَ عَطَاءً غَيْرَ مَجْدُودٍ This is, so, for instance, if you look at 108, As for those who are felicitous, they shall be in the gardens in Jannah, abiding therein for so long as the heavens and earth endure. Save thy Lord's will, a gift unfailing. There were theologians paused at this expression that you will be in hellfire as long as the heavens and earth endure. And they paused at the expression that you will be in Jannah as long as hell and earth, uh, heaven and earth endure for a couple of reasons. Some, this posed the question of, well, what is the role of earth and heaven here? Because if you're not paying attention, you might think, well, isn't heaven and, and earth going to be destroyed? And Jannah and Nar would be completely separate from heaven and earth. You see what I'm saying? If you're saying you're in hell as long as heaven and earth endure, or you are in Jannah as long as heaven and earth endure, does this mean hell and and heaven are on earth? Or is it that they're not on earth, but they continue as long as earth is around and heaven is around and the heavens are around? And to, um, you know, so th this is, if, you know, if you're, you could, there's a lot written about this, but the bottom line of it is that notice also it says Illa Masha except as your God would wish otherwise. Heaven will be trans I mean earth will be transformed, not necessarily destroyed. What that's one. Heavens, the Samawat, they are not the 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 Sama that the the um, the sky that surrounds the the earth at its ozone layer and so on. As we've talked about, the heavens means a, we actually don't don't exactly know what it means because I believe it's epochs, it's periods of time. It's not I mean, it, it's, or dimensions of reality. But it also goes back to 
which I believe, I don't believe that heaven or hell are eternal. They are, they last a very long time, but eternity is something else. Because we don't understand the concept of eternity. We have no frame of reference for us to understand the concept of eternity. Can you imagine it? What is eternity? Anyway, th this is one of the ayat that sort of gets a lot of heavy-duty theological thinking. Okay. Um, I'm going to skip 109 because there's nothing, I, I don't want to pause at it. Um, okay, yeah, it's a, 110 deserves some. وَلَقَدْ أَتَيْنَا مُوسَى الْكِتَابَ فَاخْتُلِفَ فِيهِ وَلَوْلَا كَلِمَةٌ صَبَقَتْ مِنْ رَبِّكَ لَقُدِيَ بَيْنَهُمْ وَإِنَّهُمْ لَفِي شَكٍ مِنْهُمْ مُرِيبٍ وَإِنْ كُلًّا لَمَّا يُوَفِّيَنَّهُمْ رَبُّهُمْ أَعْمَالَهُمْ إِنَّهُ بِمَا يَعْمَلُونَ خَبِيرٌ Okay, so note now as Surah Hud is closing, the Surah will segue back to the theme of justice and the theme of difference. And, or in a word, diversity. So first, it, it, it reminds us that when revelation was given to Moses, What happened, what often happens, is that human beings, once they have a text, they disagree. And disagreements and the existence of diversity sows doubt in the hearts of people. So many people look at diversity and think, well, because there is so many differences, then either there is no truth, or if there is a truth, it's unreachable. And in fact, if, if you allow me just to skip ahead for the sake of just pedagogical coherence, If you notice, 118, to just skip ahead, Allah goes back to the issue of difference and says, if Allah would have willed, all people would have been a single nation, meaning think the, think the same. But in order for people, for Allah to will this, in order for Allah to will, the end of differences, freedom of choice would have to be eradicated. 
But what is remarkable is that Allah says, not only are people different, and they will never become homogeneous. They are different and they will remain different. But not only that, Allah comes and says, and this is why I created them. Now, some like Ibn Arabi, for instance, who looked at this and said, when Allah says, and for this I created them, Ibn Arabi saw actual beauty in diversity. Ibn Arabi said it is consistent with God, Allah's, the nature of divinity, that people would dress differently, eat differently, think differently, speak differently. And that, in fact, it is an abomination against divinity to try to get people to speak the same, dress the same, eat the same. But other than even, you know, there's a whole, you know, many people like Ibn like Arabi, like Jilani said the same thing, Hasidi says the same thing, Ibn Mustaway says the same thing. I mean, there's a lot. But anyway, but other than that, those said, said, the emphasis here is that the freedom of choice is, is, is the why. The more philosophically inclined spend some time talking about this, and they say something that is actually quite, I think, accessible. Imagine a people, you take from these people the freedom of choice because you don't want them to do anything wrong. So like people may be living under the Taliban. Okay, we don't want you to commit sin. So what we'll do is we are going to restrict the range of your choices to narrower and narrower and narrower so that you don't commit sin, you don't do things that are wrong. You look at these people, it is more likely than not that you will see a great deal of unhappiness and frustration. Now, let's say you want to make these people happy. So, you say, let's open up the freedom faucet. Let's give them more choices, more choices, more choices, more choices. The more choices you give them, also the more sin they will commit. They are happier, but they're more sinful. You're presented with a very philosophical question. Which is more consistent with Allah's paradigm? A people without the freedom to sin but miserable, or the people with the freedom to sin but happy? 
Here's a hint. Allah created angels without that choice. So if Allah wanted to create people without the freedom to sin, but unhappy, Allah could have created it. And Allah could have created them without the freedom to sin and be happy. But when you realize that the nature of things in Allah's creation is choice and the freedom to even disobey and disbelieve, then وَلِذَلِكَ خَلَقَهُمْ And that is why, when Allah says, and that is why I created them, makes perfect sense. So, this is an important component. They are different. They will remain different. And, and this is intended by Allah, that they remain different. And we also know that by the time Hud had been revealed, Allah had already revealed to the Prophet ayat like ذكر فما أنت إلا مذكر لست عليهم ومسيطر you are just there to remind them you don't control them you don't have the authority to control them okay so now let's go back because we skipped ahead a bit so back to 110 where Allah introduces the idea of difference or in Hud in particular and says, listen, you know, the book was revealed to Moses. There were disagreements. We have the same problem. That there are people that look at disagreements and they just become what we've already talked about, non-committal. Because when they confront these disagreements, they think then truth must be relative. And it doesn't exist. But what Allah comes and tells the Prophet at this point is something earth-shattering. What Allah tells the Prophet is فَاسْتَقِمْ كَمَا أُمِرْتَ وَمَنْ تَابَ مَعَكَ وَلَا تَطْغَمْ إِنَّهُ بِمَا تَعْمَلُونَ بَصِيرٌ وَلَا تَرْكَنُوا إِلَى الَّذِينَ ظَلَمُوا فَتَمَسُّكُمُ النَّارُ وَمَا لَكُمْ مِنْ دُونِ اللَّهِ مِنْ أَوْلِيَاءِ ثُمَّ لَا تُنْصَرُونَ وَأَقْمِ الصَّلَاةَ طَرَفَ النَّهَارِ وَزُلْفًا مِنَ اللَّيْلِ إِنَّ الْحَسَنَاتِ يُزِلْنَ السَّيِّئَاتِ ذَلِكَ ذِكْرًا لِلذَّاكِرِينَ وَاصْبِرْ فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يُضَيِّعُ أَجْرَ الْمُحْسِنِينَ Okay, so this is now from 112 to in response to the challenge of diversity, what Allah says to the Prophet and his followers is, so, فَاسْتَقِمْ كَمَا أُمِرْتَ So, فَاسْتَقِمْ, the study Quran says, to be steadfast as though has been commanded. Fastaqim is like, so stand firm 
it's like saying, yeah, there is diversity. There's a lot of opinions, but you know what? It is your obligation to know the truth and to stand by the truth. And so it is as if it's not it's as, as actually many have pointed out that when the Prophet is told stand firm Allah provided the indication of what should be the source of that firmness. The source of the firmness is do not commit injustice. Wallah means do not oppress anyone, do not be unjust to anyone. Okay. Prayer and remember, prayer is always there. And remember, good deeds erase bad deeds. Good behavior is the only proper replacement for bad behavior. And learn perseverance and patience because your faith has to be that your reward is with Allah. So, no to injustice, no to oppression, prayer, good deeds must replace bad deeds. You can't answer a wrong with another wrong, which we've encountered several times and patience and perseverance. But if you've noticed, I skipped over one other thing, which is where the, the, the thing that blows your mind. This is 130. And do not incline towards those who are unjust. Now, there is so much that we can talk about at this point. Why? Because, as I said before, that there are many hadiths that the Prophet ﷺ said among the heaviest of things revealed to me in the Quran is precisely this ayat. And in the Islamic tradition, there is so much about what means that do not commit injustice, do not oppress, and do not even incline towards injustice mean in order to be among those who are stuckin, who stand steadfast. So, so this is, for example, um, Ibn Ajiba, what he says, وَلَا تَرْكَنُوا إِلَى الَّذِينَ ظَلَمُوا لَا تَمِيلُوا إِلَيْهِمْ أَنَّ مَيْلٍ 
فإن الركون هو الميل اليسير كالتزي بزيهم وتعظيم ذكرهم وصحبتهم من غير تذكيرهم ووعظهم قال الأوزاعي وما من شيء أبغض إلى الله تعالى من عالم يزور عاملا وقال سفيان في جهنم واد لا يسكنه إلا القراء الزائرون للملوك وقال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم من دعا لظالم بالبقاء أي بأن قال بارك الله في عمرك في عمرك أحب أن يعصى الله في أرضه وسؤال سفيان الظالم قال البيضاوي وإن كان الركون إلى من وجد, وجد منه ما يسمى ظلمة موجبة للنار فما ظنك بالركون إلى الظالمين الموسومين بالظلم ثم الميل إليهم ثم بالظلم نفسه والإنهمات فيه ولعل الآية أبلغ ما يتصور في النهي عن الظلم والتهديد عليه وخطاب الرسول صلى الله عليه وسلم ومن معه من المؤمنين بها للتثبيت على الاستقامة التي هي العدل فإن الزوال عنها الميل إلى أحد طرفي إفراط أو تفريط ظلم على نفسه أو غيره بل ظلم في نفسه بل ظلم في نفسه So what they're saying is we'll break it down bit by bit So first that Don't even incline towards unjust So what Ibn Ajib is saying is he's quoting other scholars that say inclining means not even just partaking in their injustice, but supporting their just injustice or sympathizing with their injustice or failing to condemn their injustice. And in Awza'i, who's a famous Jew, Syrian jurist, says that in fact this is the most eloquent condemnation of injustice ever in uttered. Because if, if you are a part of the apparatus of injustice in any way, you fall under what this area. You cannot contribute to the apparatus of injustice or be sympathetic towards unjust. And it had been reported from various and various versions that parts of Hira are specifically reserved for scholars who serve unjust rulers. Not serve even means that you collect money for them serve even doing dua for them or accepting an appointment from them or accepting an invitation from them. If you in any way lend credibility and legitimacy to the institutions of injustice, including an unjust ruler, and especially an unjust ruler, there is a special place in hell reserved for me. And the Prophet ﷺ said, any one of you that does dua to an unjust ruler, a ruler who commits injustice, that means 
you love, that means you want sin to be committed on this earth. And it's actually stronger with that. That it's as if you love the fact that Allah is disobeyed on earth. So even when in Mecca, they, that's why I'm so outraged by what happens in Mecca. When the Imam of the Haramin stands there at every khutbah and does dua for the king and the uh, crown prince, we all know that they are blatantly unjust rulers. Anyone that says Amin has fallen under this verse. Just saying Amin. Do, do you see the extent to which your religion, why it changed the face of the earth and why now it is in the doldrums? Because its followers neutered it, killed it. There's a lot about this point that don't incline towards them. So Azhari, for instance, says that that if you praise them or visit them or accept invitations from them or eat at their tables, that's all part of inclining towards unjust rulers. Zuhari was a, a, a scholar who had worked with rulers of his age. He was from the Umayyad period. So, um, in one, I, I'll just read it in, in Arabic, and then I'll, I'll try to paraphrase it. Um, so he's confronted by another scholar who um, reminds him of the, you know, it says, Zohari, I, I, I have to tell you something. So he tells him this. وَعْلَمْ أَنَّ أَيْسَرْ مَرْتَكَبْتَ وَأَخَفَّ مَحْتَمَلْتَ أَنَّكَ أَنَسْتْ وَحْشَةُ الظَّالِمْ وَسَحَلْتَ سَبِيلَ الْغَيْبِ دُنُوَّكْ مِمَّنْ لَمْ يُؤَدِّ حَقَّهُ وَلَمْ يَطْرُكْ بَاطِلَهُ هِنَا أَدْنَاتْ أَتَّخَذُوكَ قُبَّةً تَدُورُ عَلَيْكَ رَحَى بَاطِلِهِمْ وَجُسْرَ يَعْبُرُونَ عَلَيْكَ يَدْخُلُونَ الشَّكَّ بِكَ عَلَى الْعُلَمَاءِ وَيَقْتَضُونَ بِكَ قُلُوبَ الْجُهَلَاءِ فَمَا أَيْسَرَ مَا عَمَّرُوا لَكَ فِي جَنْبِ مَا خَرَّبُوا عَلَيْكَ وَمَا أَكْثَرَ مَا أَخَذُوا مِنْكَ فِي جَنْبِ مَا أَفْسَدُوا عَلَيْكَ مِنْ دِينِكَ فَمَا يُؤْمِنُكَ أَنْ تَكُونَ مِمَّنْ قَالَ فِيهِمُ اللَّهُ فخلف من بعدهم خلف أضاعوا الصلاة واتبعوا الشهوات فسوف يلقون غيا فإنك تعامل من لا يجهل ويحفظ عليك من لا يخفل فداوي دينك فقد دخله سقم وهيئ زادك فقد حضر الصفر البعيد وما يخفى على الله من شيء في الأرض It is one of the most profound statements condemning the scholar for working with unjust students. And he's basically telling him, by just hanging around them, 
they gained legitimacy and credibility and were able to use your name and your reputation to mislead people. You became a, like, a ladder for injustice. You became a means for the commission of injustice. You destroyed your religion, or meaning that you've, you've lost your religion. And he's saying this to a very prominent jurist, but the fact that this jurist hung around unjust rulers, it, it's like, it, it's a, a, a profound condemnation of anyone that accepts um, to be a part of, of that, that entire system. Um, Okay, so the other thing is that Fastokin Kama Umirut, so many scholars who discussed this whole, this precise expression. When the, the, the steadfastness that is being demanded or the firmness that is being demanded is indistinguishable from the command to be just. It is the very core command for, that was understood by the Prophet and his followers is that diversity of opinions in no way wavers the duty or mitigates the duty to establish justice. And then in Razi, for instance, discusses, says in, in his commentary on these verses, he says, this is why in Islamic law, let me read it in Arabic first. Uh, so what he's saying is that this is why in Sharia, the principle when it comes to the rights of God is to interpret the rights of God narrowly and to err on the side of not fulfilling the rights of God. But when it comes to the rights of people, to interpret the rights of people broadly and to err on the side of fulfilling the rights of people. Why? Because istikama here is adl. And the command is to achieve justice. So 
under no circumstances can you commit an injustice against people claiming that you're fulfilling the rights of God. This is why people like Taliban need an education, if only they understood. You cannot use the rights of God to commit an injustice against the people. Moreover, Irazi goes on to say, and what Irazi says, again, it's not an outlier, this is just typical, that Allah does not support or support a, uh, Allah will not destroy a nation because of its shirk. Allah will destroy a nation because of its injustice. So even if there is a Muslim nation, but it is an unjust nation, it will be destroyed. And there, if there is a non-Muslim nation, but it is a just nation, it will not be destroyed. So in fact, he even goes, he says, so Allah will not destroy them just because of the shirk. If they were good doers, if they, they although mushrikeen, although kuffar, they treat each other justly and fairly, Allah will not destroy them. This is, this is not liberal Khalid Abul Fadl who's saying this stuff. This is your tradition written centuries ago before Khalid Abul Fadl ever was created or was born. It is anchored in your tradition. It is just you are cheated out of your tradition by people who are fundamentally ignorant and poorly educated. Okay. So even even like the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa man ma'ahu min al-mu'mineen biha lit-tathbeet ala al-istiqama allati hiya al-adl. This is Ibn Ajiba. So he's saying when Allah says to the Prophet and the believers, Astaqim Kama Umirt. So Ibn Ajib is saying, this is Allah is emphasizing that al istiqama alati al adl, that istiqama, what we say mustaqim, right? So what is an istiqama? Ibn Ajib say istiqama is justice. Okay. In al-hasanati yuzibn al-sayyat, the good deeds remove evil deeds. There is a report that is often narrated uh, in in this context with this ayah. Um, not not to uh, you know. I hope people not. But it, 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 
you know, just if scholarly honesty, I, I have to transmit it. Um, that um, it was it was narrated by Ibn Juzay, but also narrated by others. Um, it's in Musnad in in um, uh, in Muslim and also in Musnad Ahmad and other hadith books, and it's it's often narrated by or, or quoted cited by um, Quranic. Um, commentators when they talk about uh, good removal, removing evil. The story um, goes that at the time, the, but this supposedly took place in Medina, not Mecca. So after this ayah was revealed, that a man and woman who knew each other in the market ended up getting tempted and kissing. Not uh, not all the way, but, you know. So the man goes to the prophet, which, again, it's very, it, it's very interesting, the, 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 just the honesty. He goes to the prophet and he tells him, I had an encounter with this woman that I know and she's married and I'm married and he, he was a date merchant and she was buying dates and we got into a conversation and then we ended up kissing. Um, what do I do? So the Prophet says pray X amount of prayers and and cites this verse in the Hasanati of Ibn Sayyid. So some of the companions told the Prophet, "Is this something that you recommended to him specifically, or is this generally?" And he said, "No, it's generally. If one of you commits a sin, and you know it's a sin." repent and replace it with good deeds you know it's just don't abuse it or misunderstand it it, it doesn't mean you know it's open season um, it just means that the taliban's fanaticism is wrong uh, you know things are not God is not out there to get us, and God is most forgiving for those who want to be forgiven. Okay, let's move on from this uncomfortable topic, at least for me, because it's embarrassing. Well, as you get older, you become more and more embarrassed by these things. Um, when you're young, you're not embarrassed. So now we get to 116, which, which further affirms that lesson. فَلَوْلَ كَانَ مِنَ الْقُرُونِ مِنْ قَبْلِكُمْ أُلُوا بَقِيَّةٍ يَنْهَوْنَ عَنِ الْفَسَادِ فِي الْأَرْضِ 
إلا قليلا ممن أنجينا منهم واتبع الذين ظلموا ما أترفوا فيه وكانوا مجرمين وما كان ربك ليهلك القرى بظلم وأهلها مصلحون. So 1:16 comes and does something that's quite stunning. Yeah, it says that among the the, the epochs there what sustains this world is the minority of people that fight against corruption so when you when you look at the world and you see those people who are advocates for human rights or advocates for environmental rights or advocates for um, the rights of the poor or advocates against forms of injustice recognize that these are the people that call upon the world God's mercy if it hadn't been for these people we would be God would allow us to suffer the consequences of our own injustice far more than we realize. So in other words, it's like saying, I do you favors because of these people. And subhanAllah that Allah recognizes them that as a minority. Says this minority that that fight corruption on earth is the minority that sustains God's mercy and God's blessings and then this principle that in 117 that Allah does not destroy or Allah it's, it's like put it differently Allah will not be against or will not again will act against societies that are just. This is precisely why the only theology I am aware of on the face of the earth where its scholars said if an unjust Muslim army meets a just Muslim army in the battlefield, Allah will give victory to the just non-Muslim army over the unjust Muslim army. When I say it's the only theology I am aware of in the world is because in the years of studied religion, Christian theologians are very decisive over this. God is always with the soldiers of Christ, just or unjust. In Jewish theology, God is always with the people of Israel, just or unjust. God can reprimand the people of Israel for their injustice through a variety of ways. 
But God will always give the people of Israel victory over their enemies. When I read even in Confucian theology, not as well read in Hindu theology, but what I've read, it was the same thing, that it is God is always with what they believe, except for Muslim theologians. In, most, in Islamic theology, it is the only theology, and, and I'm not counting the modern age, because the modern age gets extremely messed up, but in the, in the formative periods of Islamic theology, it was always God is with the just, even if the just is not Muslim. Now, in this context, in this context, again, when over this verse, وَمَا كَانَ رَبُّكَ لَيُهْلِكَ قُرَىٰ بِظُلْمٍ وَأَهْلُهَا مُصْلِحُونَ This is, some jurists claim that this is the verse that inspired the entire construction of the jurisprudence about the rights of God and rights of people. And that the rights of people will always trump the rights of God. Now, I know that this shocks a lot of modern Muslims, but in classical jurisprudence, the rights of people trump the rights of God. The reason for this theologically is God is more than capable of vindicating God's right in the hereafter. But we human beings are charged primarily with vindicating the rights of people. First, before the rights of God. Those of you that wondered why I've written so much about Wahhabism and criticized Wahhabism so much is because Wahhabism was the first theologically coherent stance that flipped that dynamic and said the rights of God take precedence over the rights of people. For, from a juristic point of view, I saw that as disastrous because it is a complete switch in the trajectory of Islamic history. The other thing I should note is that when the Prophet والسلام, uh, commenting on these verses, uh, especially verse 116, the Prophet said, and I'll, I'll quote the, at least in, in part, the hadith, وَالَّذِي نَفْسْ مُحَمَّدْ بِيَدِهِ لَإِنْ شِئْتُمْ لَأُقْسِمَنَّ لَكُمْ إِنَّ أَحَبَّ عِبَادِ اللَّهِ إِلَى اللَّهِ الَّذِينَ يُحَبِّبُونَ اللَّهِ إِلَى عِبَادِهِ وَيُحَبِّبُونَ عِبَادَ اللَّهِ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَيَمْشُونَ فِي الْأَرْضِ بِالنَّصِيحَةِ um, So, what he, the Prophet ﷺ said, commenting about these verses is, he says, he's swearing by Allah, it's like saying, by Allah, meaning, you know, this is so important that it is worth swearing about. 
And what is he swearing to? He's saying that the most beloved people to Allah are those who make Allah beloved to human beings. You have an affirmative obligation as a human being or as a Muslim to make people fall in love with Allah. Leave alone hate Allah or leave alone be scared of Allah. Or, I mean, and also those who make people beloved to Allah. So when the Prophet was asked, he said, well, okay, make people love Allah, we understand that. That we should make a point that people would fall in love with Allah, we understand that. But how can we make people beloved to Allah? How can we make Allah love people? And the Prophet said, by teaching people to do good. That by encouraging people to do good, they're going to become more and more beloved to Allah. Now, I was talking to someone recently, and I was saying that, you know, it's amazing that in, you know, I came to the U.S. in 1982, so it's been many years. Um, and in all the years I've been in the U.S., not in a single Islamic conference, not in a single Islamic center, I've heard anyone quote this hadith. Although it is in, in Bukhari, in Muslim, and in all the books of hadith, it's, I mean, been authenticated up and down, left and right. And they said, you know, the first time I've heard about this hadith is from you. I don't think you can get a more powerful statement about what's wrong with us in the way we are approaching the tradition and that. Okay. Then we get to 118, which we jumped forward to. إلا من رحم ربك ولذلك خلقهم وتمت كلمة ربك لكأن جهنم من من جهنم من الجنة والناس أجمعين that if if Allah would have wished will if Allah would have willed Allah would have made all people the same without differences but they will they are different and they will continue to be different and this is why Allah created them created them then 120, فعبده وتوكل عليه وما ربك بغافل عما تعملون. so after this after this amazing moral journey, Allah reminds the Prophet ﷺ and Muslims that I am telling you these narratives. 
for a point that this is the haqq, this is the truth, and this is maw'iza wa dhikra, and this is guidance to the believers. It's like Allah saying, pay attention, don't read these as historical narratives. Pay attention to what I'm teaching you. And as to your moral stance, which is what we've encountered in Surah Yunus as well, is tell everyone, worry about your moral position. Worry about what you've done, what deeds you've performed. Literally, your, your, your stand before Allah, your moral position. As we will worry about ours. And ultimately, this, although we read it in, in passive, we're saying, and just wait, because we are waiting. This is no small thing in that you don't control the conclusions, you don't control the, the, the story, you are not expected to control anything. You are expected to perform what is right, to, take, to make the right decisions and take the right stance. But beyond that, you and I are simply passengers on this train, waiting for it to reach its destiny, which is up to Allah. Because when you start thinking that, no, they're waiting, but I have, I'm, I have a special status, and somehow I, I must control the conclusion. That's where people go astray all the time. And of course, that in all cases, we rely soundly on Allah. And we believe that nothing escapes Allah's knowledge and notice. When you take Surah Yunus with Surah Hud, and again, remember, this is right after the Isra. It was a challenge. It was a challenge because you have a people that they, they already got the, the, the challenge of believing in the Isra. The, the, the intense mockery and jeering of the Meccans and then added to that now, by the time Hood is revealed, the persecution has escalated as it's, it's you know, the, 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 the dam has broken and there is intense persecution. And Surat Hood comes and tells them, you don't have, it's not the fact that you're a Muslim, it's justice. You know, 
Sometimes I think if the Quran was revealed to the Muslims of today, it would have had no followers because we are so amazingly weak. And a lot of times people say, why was it revealed in Arabia? Allah must have known that these men or these men and women, maybe because they were never dominated by an empire. That's what I believe. Because people who are raised under authoritarian rule, they, they lose their, their, their moral backbone. Maybe because they were free-spirited Bedouins is, is what made them... But to be persecuted and chased and to have your property confiscated and so on, and, and you want what your prophet to tell you is, don't worry, God is with you, good or bad. You know, God is going to smite those people and destroy them, even if they were whatever they do. Instead, it comes with this extremely layered narrative, extremely nuanced and extremely moral. And it reminds them that there is no compromise because of political pragmatism, no compromise with principled issues as to, for instance, excluding the poor or excluding the unprivileged or excluding certain ethnicities or excluding people who don't have tribal status or whatever. And then on top of that comes and says, Allah is with the just. And your obligation, if you want Allah to be with you, is to be just. It's amazing. It's just for those who really understand the Quran, it cannot be from any source but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but from a divine source. Human beings don't talk this way. Walhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen and this is Surah Bismillah I just word forgot one thing that um, Imam Jafar al-Sadiq said about, again, the ayah, don't incline towards unjust. Imam Jafar al-Sadiq said um, that the most unjust, in, the most unjust in a human being is the ego, the nafs. In this context, he means by, by nafs, ego. And he said, So do not incline towards that ego. And what he means by it is that don't surrender to it. Um, but in commentaries on what Imam Jafar al-Sadiq said, I remember reading that um, that the truly pious do not even incline towards themselves. So 
they go out of their way to take the point of view of the other. And um, rather than simply uh, be prejudiced towards their own point of view. Um, of course, that's demanding, and, and, but those who aspire for a true pristine piety and a, and a true moral self, um, you, you see things from the perspective of, perspectives of others and you don't judge until you understand things you, from the perspectives of others. So you, you consider things from your own perspective, the perspective of others, and when you are sure you understand the other perspective, then you can judge. Alhamdulillah, thank you so much. This was such a stunning surah. Um, it's like there's so much that obviously it's going to take time to process. Um, and also like thinking that in the trilogy, right, we start with Yunus and then we go to Hud and then sort of excited to see what Yusuf has to say also about justice and all of that. It's, it's amazing. And I, like I um, I'm so struck by the idea, I mean, the emphasis on the idea of just, you know, you're judged by your merit and whether you're with, you know, God or not is dependent on your stance on justice. Um, it's really so valuable also when you put into context for us, like how unusual an idea that was, like with, yes. you know, with how people were used to thinking of things in terms of, um, of privilege and power. Um, this actually really reminds me too of a, of a story, I don't know if you remember this, but once we went to a rabbi's home for dinner and they were sharing with us that in the Jewish tradition there is this idea that there are certain small group of people around the entire world that are upholding justice. Oh, and that if yeah. it were not for those people that God um, would, would uh, yeah, I forgot, what I forgot the name of it, yeah. but it was beautiful because the, the rabbi actually thought that Sheikh was one of these people that was upholding justice. But I love the idea that in, you know, this, just the sense of like, you know, we all know those people around the world or in different communities, those few people even that show up on social media, you know, that are upholding justice constantly and the idea that God, you know, might be just saving these communities because of, because of them is so beautiful. Um, and then also, you know, considering trying to share this message with humanity, like, you know, the idea of it's much more important whether you're just than whether you're Muslim or Christian or Jewish. Again, it just underscores that beautiful idea of goodness in humanity. Alhamdulillah. I mean, it's just there's so much to reflect on. But so thank you for... I mean, I, you know, I didn't say in the beginning, but Sheikh has, you know, again, been, been just absolutely fighting pain in every way, shape, or form in order to arrive here and deliver, you know, stunning surah and finish it out for us. So um, thank you, everyone, for your prayers. Thank you to Sheikh for all the sacrifices, um, just fight, you know, fighting to, to be here. Um, we're, we're so lucky. We're so blessed. Um, let me start by asking you, is there a, a particular dhikr? Yeah, it, it is the 
was fascinating because um, when you're talking about the idea that Allah stands with justice uh, and it's not just you know you're uh, a Muslim and that's it it's 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 fascinating how Muslims have I mean when you read any book on uh, political science like the Marriage for Princess they, they cite people like Alexander the Great and Anushirvan, the Zoroastrian Persian, as paragons of justice and quoting their wisdom. Um, and, you know, it wasn't this idea of like, oh, they're non Muslim, so we're not going to take from them. I mean, I think if, you know, there's something to add to that, to the tafsir. Another thing was when you were just saying Surah Hud in prayer. It's almost as if anticipating the fact that people are going to... The biggest excuse or the biggest reason for compromising principles is risk. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's, it's like, it's just fascinating how this comes at the very beginning, you know, uh, preempting that type of concern. Um, and then, uh, so my, my actual question is, why is this chapter called Hud? Because at one point last week you mentioned um, that Hud is, he, when he promised, he, he, he's the only prophet who promises worldly success to mm-hmm. his followers if they follow him. Um, so yeah, if you could elaborate on why this is called Hud. I don't know if everyone caught everything wrong you're saying, but his first point is just a, an addition that in, in the Islamic tradition, it's not at all unusual uh, to find in the classical sources where they will be citing uh, to pre-Islamic Persian kings, or figures like Alexander the Great, or Aristotle, or Socrates, um, for their teachings on justice. And, and again, that's unusual. Um, uh, it, it's, it's unusual that, that you had a civilization that was so open to uh, teachings of, of people that were clearly not monotheists or, or not even believers in God, but what mattered is what the... There's actually a book... I, I have a copy of the manuscript. Um, 
it's um, it's a compilation um, I have a copy of the manuscript it's a comp but it's a compilation uh, written in the fifth century Hijra of um, everything that the author could find said from around every tradition this author could encounter about justice and it's a it's an it's a very interesting manuscript because it, it's um, he, he starts out by you know, a, a long introduction about the ob the that the obligation of a Muslim to pursue and understand justice, whatever it is. And then he, the compilation actually is mostly non-Muslims, what non-Muslims have said about justice. And so there's a lot, a lot from um, Persia, a lot from um, India, a lot from um, uh, uh, the Greek tradition, especially, um, very interesting manuscript. The the other point that Rami was saying, which is actually uh, also a really good point, that that at the very beginning of Surah Hud, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala underscores that the matter of risk, the matter of what you earn, what your wealth is in Allah's hands. And Rami's point is that justice is often compromised because of the claim that we need to be pragmatic about about this this very worldly concern. And so it's it's pre that that type of argument is preempted by Allah at the very beginning saying um, that's not an excuse, it's not going to work. Um, as to why uh, Surah Hud was called Surah Hud, um, I believe that there, there are several reasons for everything that I found in, in the tradition that it the fact that, because it was very important for Muslims at the time, that in the same way that Luqman told his persecutors to go ahead and bring their persecution on, this was noted with particular interest by Muslims that Hud said the same thing because they were confronting persecution and there was a very serious question that uh, uh, the very pragmatic concern well do we try to avoid being persecuted by saying to the Meccans things that they would like to hear or do we insist on principle and suffer the consequences. So one, it, it was very striking to them that Hood 
in, in this surah is the prophet that says, you know, no compromise, even if it means having to be harmed. And in fact, go ahead and harm me. Um, so I, you find this time and time again noted. The other thing is that um, there, the, the excuse that the Meccans would, were, Meccans were always saying that if we followed what Muhammad is preaching, Mecca would lose its prestige, Mecca would lose its power, and Hud has a very direct response to this, is that power and prestige is a matter left to Allah. And more, the, the more even, uh, some commentators even said that it, it, it was a, what, what the message that Hud had in saying that if you believe Allah will in fact uh, promote your interests, not undermine them, is that to shift the understanding of prestige from wealth to justice. So it, this was also noted as very core the third element was this idea of istikhlaf, which becomes, after Surah Hud, very central in the Quran. And that is the consistent promise, because Surah Hud emphasizes justice. So what early Muslims understood it as saying, either you establish justice, or if you fail, Allah will cause you to be removed and replace you with another. Now, later on in the Quran, this is said explicitly, that if you don't do what you're supposed to do, uh, Allah will, re will simply replace you. Uh, but because of these three elements, it was thought that the as short as the um, the role that Hud plays in, in Surah Hud, that in fact it was Hud that delivered the most core messages of the Surah. Um, and, and that's why, uh, you know, there were a couple of, there were, there were a couple of competing positions proposing different names for the Surah, but clearly the one that uh, became established um, early on was good. And these are the, the reasons. Thank you, Sheikh. There's been a question that I've been thinking about for a while, but trying to find the right ahraqa to ask, and I figured maybe this one might be um, the one with in regards to the constant reference to um, to uh, the disbelievers stating the Quran is a, a clear magic, mm -hmm. Mubin, right? And uh, obviously, the Prophet uh, oftentimes given many uh, cowardly nicknames and this sort of thing, and one of them being Sahab. But 
there seems to be a, a repetitive focus on the magic. Uh, and I was wondering what you thought about that. In, in, you know, uh, when we did some of the earlier things with Musa uh, and the magicians, it seemed kind of clear that those who typically are manipulative, um, you know, those who mystify power as it is, when they see someone else who has power, they'll clearly just say, oh, he's just also mystifying power. So they mm. kind of tell on themselves. I thought that was kind of the obvious um, thing. But I had been thinking about like our modern understanding of magic today and what makes magic really special in terms of captivating the imagination is when when it's so real that it's impossible to reason with. Mm -hmm. There's no way to reason with it, but to just simply say, well, but I know that it's magic, but because if, if, I, if I admit that it's not magic, then I have to completely change my entire reality. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, the kuffar are, you know, perhaps, you know, in, in one of the verses, perhaps they wish that they were believers, or perhaps mm -hmm. they thought that, mm -hmm. is, it, is it kind of in the sense that the kuffar are hearing this truth, this like very obvious inherent truth, and are forced to have no choice but to respond to it the way that you respond to magic in that it is magically changing something within mm -hmm. them and they know that it has this magical force that it manipulates their entire being so to speak but then they say well it is this is like real magic is mm -hmm. essentially what they're exclaiming but then hiding behind well magic isn't real anyways kind of thing yeah i mean this is an interesting point there Paraphrase, please. Of course, you know, they, they, when they say that this is sorcery, um, you know, whether it's saying what they know to be truth, but they don't want to confront it. And so, I mean, of course, the, the point about sorcery, though, is, is that, um, there's some really some practical aspects to it. Is that it is coming and and saying things that um, they're not accustomed to hearing in their poetry, and we know of the narratives of those people who you know try to. Uh, travel to Persia and travel to Iraq and travel to uh, Syria and collect uh, ancient um, mythologies to try to sort of beat the Quran and 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 so they knew that it was even very different than the mythologies of ancients like it, it did it sound the same? It, it sounded very different than the Old Testament. It sounded very different than the New Testament. And so it is a, 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 a very different discourse. And yet it is for so many people that their, their hearts become enraptured by it and understanding the message 
that it becomes so unequivocal for them that they're willing to give up their lives, they're willing to, to make any sacrifices, it, it struck them as, and I think that with the, with the, with the number of people that converted to Islam later on in Mecca, I think that like often when everyone knows the truth, but the reason people deny the truth is because of a certain power structure, but if that power structure falls, then the whole, so I mean, it's like when a tyrant is in power. And, and, and I've actually often, you know, uh, those of us that lived under dictatorial governments have experienced this. You know, such and such president is in power, and when they're alive, all the songs, all the um, pictures in the streets, all the, you know, everyone is praising. The, everywhere you go, it's as if, and then suddenly this, this tyrant dies. And overnight, you discover, it's like as if people wake up and, and, and oh, we never loved them. You know, so uh, all, all the, the, you know, you hear songs being sung for in the, in, in the lyre, you know, praising this tyrant. You, you can't drive anywhere without seeing million pictures of this. And it just collapses like that. And I think that you saw some of this, some, something like that in Mecca. It's like everyone knew that the Quran was the truth. And, and, but as long as the power structure was there, people were going to, didn't want to, you know, forego the privileges and so on. Once the, the, the Podols in power were overthrown, Mecca said, okay, you know, the, 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 it's over. Um, now we can say what it was in our real, really in our hearts because it, we know that there are many you know there are many places that were defeated militarily but people didn't convert overnight and people who even if they converted they were not willing to sacrifice their lives but you're talking about a place like mecca that once it was conquered in a very short period of time they were fighting, they were laying their lives on the line in the apostasy wars. They were laying their lives in, on the line in wars with Persia and wars with Byzantia. I mean, so you can't just say, oh, it was all a convenient political conversion. Um, th that's too, too simple and too illogical. But yeah, I mean, I think that the accusation of sorcery is exactly like, well, we can't explain it. So then it must be just a trick. We just haven't figured out what the trick is. Thank you so much. Um, this is a really, I think it's a really short, simple one, and perhaps even insolent. Um, one of the things that's coming through time and time again is not just the tradition, but I think Grace has talked about this in some intros, the, uh, the poverty of English language translations yeah. of the Quran, not just commentaries, but just translations. So based on everything that we've 
talked about istiqamah because we've had it now here, we had it in Fusilat, I think, Ahqaf, this principle yeah. of istiqamah. How does one translate Ihdina Sarat Mustaqim? Because you always just see it, there's so much depth istiqamah, it's just, oh, God, it's a straight path. Yeah, yeah. God, a straight path. <laughs> I, I put in my notes, um, maybe I can try this out. Guide us to the path of a firm, unwavering commitment to justice. Question mark. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, uh, the Arabic language is a lot of words that the nuances of the words change depending on the context. And I think is an unwavering commitment to the ethical, ethical past, path. Um, because when you look at everything, um, there's actually, I didn't, um, but Rosie, let me see if I can find it. Rosie sort of talks about, you know, because the question of ethics uh, concerned Muslim theologians for, um, Okay. Um, so, so Razi says, well, let me first read it in Arabic very quickly. So he says, وَلَا شَكَّ أَنَّ الْبَقَاءَ عَلَى الْإِسْتَقَامَةِ الْحَقِيقِيَةِ مشكل جدا وانا اضرب لذلك مثلا يقرب صعوبه هذا المعنى الى العقل السليم وهو ان الخط المستقيم الذي يفصل بين الظل وبين الضوء جزء واحد لا يقبل القسمه في العرض الا ان عين ذلك الخط مما لا يتميز في الحس عن طرفيه فانه اذا قرب الطرف الظل من طرف الضوء اشتبه البعض بالبعض في الحس فلم يقع الحس على ادراك ذلك الخط بعينه so what he's saying is that when he's talking about istiqama, he says, you know, istiqama is, is this dividing line between what is right and what is wrong. And he says that it is, if you take a dividing line between what is right and what is wrong, it, it, it's in, you can't break that line further. It's like, can't divide, it's indivisible. And yet, that line, depending on how light and shadows move around this line, it can obscure parts of that line so it becomes difficult to see it. But the line remains the same. It's there. It's just that the, 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 the dynamics of light and shadows cover it, and especially at the edges, which is interesting. Um, so, and when you read a lot of what was written about, about this whole notion of istiqama, istiqama, it is, it, it's not even the 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 the, 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 the theologians didn't adopt 
a legal definition. So istiqama is not to just follow the ibadat because that could be highly artificial. So, okay, you pray and you fast and so on, but you're a liar and you're a cheat and you're deceitful and you're cruel and you're inhumane. So what they, they always came back to is al-khulqul hasan, proper ethics. Now, and then they, 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 they exert an enormous amount of effort in, in trying to say what is part of proper ethics. But it is. It's like when we say, Allahumma hadina salatu mustaqeem, we don't teach this to our children, which is again very unfortunate. Allah help us to remain steadfast on the ethical path to see it, to understand it, to embrace it, to commit to it, to follow it. So we don't fall off, we don't deviate. <clears throat> um, my question's regarding the verse, and it appears numerous times that they only worship in the way that their fathers worship. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, because in, in today, and I, I don't, I think that this is unique and is extreme in today's day and age, and it's not really a question on obedience to parents, but there's an immense amount of irreverence towards our parents, just culturally speaking. It's pretty widespread. But at the same time, ideological, like, it's an irreverence of like ideology and judgment and that you know i am i'm more forward i'm better that was the old way and that's that's something that's valued that, pro that progressiveness is valued in our culture but when we got to that verse this time in the surah it occurred to me ideologically and intellectually perhaps they do judge the way things were before but habitually in terms of actions we're kind of doing the same thing, we just dress it up in different ways. And so I wanted to ask you if you had any thoughts on what, what is the relationship between habits, especially ones that, and most of them are motivated by subconscious drives, um, the relationship between habits and worship and what Allah might be trying to communicate to us in terms of what worship is. Um, I mean, uh, habits and worship is, is, is maybe, uh, um, the relationship between habits and worship is a, is a tougher question. Um, unless I'm misunderstanding you. But I, I, I want to comment on the whole, in, on specifically this issue of, um, The, the tendency to um, to just imitate what parents do or what whatever the tradition is and the, it, if you notice that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala I mean it says, um, 
This is what what was the number of this item? Uh, 116 um, when Allah talks about normally the, 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 the way that this would be do you have 116? the way that this is translated is um Yeah, those who did wrong pursued the luxuries they had been given, and they were guilty. This is a, a literal translation that could be right, but I think it's wrong. It's like those who were unjust followed their, their indulgences. And indulgences are not simply luxuries there are partly partly luxuries but indulgences are anything that um, is the path of least resistance where you put comfort before truth and comfort before justice and comfort before ethics why am i saying this because one of the first things you 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 read when you read in the philosophy of ethics is that the nature of ethical stance is that they are uncomfortable and this is not just in in islamic theology i'm talking generally that when people take ethical stands, they are always risking ridicule, they're risking disagreement, they're risking loss of privilege, they're risking uh, harm. When people take ethical stands, and the Quran, subhanAllah, the Quran then adds to us that this is always a minority of people. The minority will take ethical stance and will, and the Quran even creates the expectation that they will suffer for it. Now, when you follow the indulgence, you make an assumption, and this is often what people do, is that I will assume that my, the way of life, whatever it is, is ethical. I'm not going to ask the hard question of, looking at the particulars, the, the reality, looking at injustice, looking at... No, I'm going to assume that whether it is, you know, my country, whether it is... You know, I was watching something yesterday about this guy who um, had fought in Iraq. It's an American soldier who fought in Iraq. And he was talking about PTSD, and he's saying, "Oh, you know, I, uh, oh, yeah, we went and fought the terrorists, and because the the Muslims they want world domination and want Sharia law. So, okay, so you went to Iraq, you overthrow a secular government, which is Saddam Hussein's government, a secular government, 
you call those who are fighting for, for the independence of their country and fighting off a foreign invasion to their country terrorists, and you're assuming that all of those Iraqis not only are Muslim, although there are many Iraqis who are Christian who fought, but you're also assuming that they're all Muslim fanatics who want world domination and Shia law. So it's a hodgepodge of confusions. And I'm like thinking of this, of this guy who, who has messed up his life because he suffered severe PSD and his drug addict and all of that. But in his mind, he, he's thinking of, of he's a hero, and of course, everyone talks about you know all the, the the the. Can you imagine the amount of indulgences that this guy has engaged in, and that so many engage in? It's like because some corrupt elite sitting in Washington D.C. told us go fight there and go die. Um, we're just going to not bother with asking any, thinking ethically about anything. And we're just going to, you know, take it all in. And, and this is the, 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 the whole challenge or the, 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 when the Quran repeatedly warns us about being a people of exactly these types of indulgences. Whatever comes from our parents, whatever comes from whatever our party is, you know, however you define it. Uh, the, the, the Egyptians who def blindly defend whatever Egypt does, even if it is suffocating fellow Muslims in Gaza to death. I mean, amazing, unbelievable. It, 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 who would have thought that was possible? Uh, you know, or the Saudis who blindly support whatever Saudi is doing in Yemen and, and, and the incredible, endless human rights atrocities. Or the, you know, again, you just could go on and on and on. But unfortunately, most people, including a lot of Muslims, when it comes to you know, I, I was pondering uh, all these kids who are told by their parents, don't, take, don't study the Quran too seriously because that's dangerous. Don't attend the halaqa. Don't talk to Khaled or Fad because it's amazing. I mean, it is like saying a parent tells their child, study engineering, study medicine, study biology, study whatever, but don't you use your brain very intense, with great intensity about these topics, but when it comes to the Quran, your source of information is whatever we tell you. What could be a greatest, greater taraf than that? greater indulgence than that. And it, it's morally bankrupt. What can you say? But I mean, what Grace mentioned is actually, uh, you know, friends that we like them, they like us, 
but were afraid to appear in a picture uh, with me. Not because, obviously, not because I'm a law professor. You know, a lot of people appear in pictures with me as a UCLA law professor. And, and I'm sure if anyone wanted to go to law school, I mean, I get contacted by Muslims all the time who want, when, when, if they're applying to UCLA law, they want me to help them. And then they're happy to be. But because I teach Quran, it's mind-boggling. It really, this is the level we've reached. And of course, you know, they already made the accusation. If you take the Quran seriously, then you're Ikhwan. Although I've never belonged to the Ikhwan, never even liked the Ikhwan. I disagree with them ideologically on so many things. But, you know, I don't know. No, no, it's it just if you can't allow you can't allow yourself to think about it too much because then you become demor demoralized and you just sit home doing nothing. <laughs> or no, or more accurately, you just, then you become you know a corrupt lawyer and you just go make, practice law and make tons of money and uh, buy your summer home in Vienna and cheat on your wife and then divorce your wife and then marry someone who's 30 years younger than you are. And, you know, same old story. That's it. <laughs> same story. Yeah. Um, that story. <laughs> I know we're close to the end of the time, but we had some really good questions from the interactive group. So I thought I would just read all of them and see if any of them strike your fancy, if you have okay. energy, if you want to address anything, okay? Um, so, and, and alhamdulillah, people were saying thank you. This was a very beautiful halakha. Okay, first question. In terms of, quote, unquote, someone taking your place, if, you, if you're if you immoral or unjust, what does this mean if the decision for someone's life to be taken is taken by another human? For example, death penalty, murder. How can one in this society where there is money and means to house and rehabilitate even murderers in a humane way, be okay with taking away someone's ability to repent by cutting their life short? Okay, that was one question. Question two, sometimes I worry that my definition of justice, fairness, and ease is quote unquote too easy. For example, it may be quote unquote fair, but it is not Islamic because of following some worldly desire. When I fear this, I seek knowledge, the opinions of scholars, etc. but I still doubt. All this leads to my epistemological question. What is the Islamic definition of justice and how do we know when our definition of moral goodness, beauty, and justice is divinely inspired or ignorantly affected by un-Islamic principles? And then the third question um, is, Salam alaikum, thank you so much, Professor. My question is about diversity as it's so important in our religion and is the source of beauty and is the divine will but we have the tendency to resist our children's diversity in the name of teaching them social norms and acceptable behavior. How do we balance it so that we don't damage their uniqueness and diversity? Well, these are good questions. Um, the hardest one, perhaps, is the middle one. Uh, diversity, you know, every child is 
is um, Allah, you know how Allah, SubhanAllah, again, the, the created Quran, the, Allah taught us something in the created Quran. The created Quran, every human being has unique fingerprints and unique DNA code. And in this is a, is a lesson, the uniqueness of a human being. And every child is truly unique. Um, your moral obligation, and I do believe it's a moral obligation, is to encourage your child to discover I mean, obviously, you want to teach your child about God. You want to teach your child about the, the, the hereafter. You want to teach your child about Islam. You all of that. You want to, but but beyond that is to be is to support your child so they can be the best version of themselves and what I mean by that is to explore and discover their own talents and pursue their God-given talents. Um, Muslims, especially immigrant Muslims, commit a crime, and I do consider it a crime, in that they, you know, they'll take someone who's not gifted in the sciences and they, they try to breathe down their neck to get them to be an engineer or a doctor or a computer scientist. And as a result, you, you damage these human beings in, and often permanently uh, because they enter into fields that they're not gifted in and they can't compete and they feel inferior and then they develop a complex and they hate themselves and they hate their lives and they are grumpy, bitter human beings and lousy parents forever. Um, you know, subhanAllah that it's, I mean, it, it blows my mind that I find among non-Muslims, you know, when I find Jewish students who are specializing in Islamic studies, and they're far less worried about the job market. They're getting doctorates. Do you know that most graduates, most people who graduate with a doctorate in Islamic studies in the West are not Muslim. They're not Muslim, they're Jews and Christians. Why are these not Muslims not worried about the job market, obsessively so, while you can't talk to a Muslim without them saying, well, I can't get a doctorate in Islam studies because, you know, how do I know I'm gonna have a job? I, I talked to, to, you know, all, most of my students in Islamic studies are not Muslim. And they like, you know, they just, the way they're raised is, you know, it, we support you as long as this is your passionate interest. Well, some of them, of course, are studying Islam and do, doing Islam studies to study their enemy. Um, we have that too.
unfortunately. Um, what was the first question again? The first question was about cutting uh, people's lives short so they can't... Oh, um, I, um, I wrote an article about capital punishment. And remember that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I mean, the, has always emphasized that avoiding putting someone to death is the superior way. And especially in a system of justice, uh, like the, the modern systems of justice, where uh, rules of evidence are extremely complex and uh, the and, and the justice systems suffer from an enormous amount of classism and an enormous amount of racism. I mean, I can tell you, um, if you have a criminal case and you you know you, you gonna hire a good lawyer, the first thing they'll tell you is, I need a retainer of a hundred thousand dollars. And there's no, no such thing as, well, can I pay you on in installments? It, it's like, no, I want the retainer. How, how many people can defend themselves? That type of system of justice where criminal attorneys will charge, you know, anywhere from $500 to $1,200. I know a criminal attorney that charges $1,500 an hour. The results they get are beyond the shadow of doubt, very different. If you look at the, the fate of clients represented by these types of attorneys, to clients that are represented either by mass production attorneys, attorneys that charge 150 an hour, uh, or by public defenders, or if you look at the impact of death penalty on, along racial grounds, I don't support death penalty in, in our modern legal systems. And, I, and I've written an article where I believe that Islamically that is the right position. Um, I don't, there's too many people that have been sentenced to death and then it turns out that they were wrongly convicted and there are too many people that are sentenced to death who change their lives around. But, and remember that we execute people after keep them, keeping them on death row for 20 years. The person that we sentence to death is often very different than the person who is being put to death. 20 years later, I mean, people are changed. Um, and then when I see countries like Muslim countries the way they use the death sentence is if I mean, the number of people executed in a country like Egypt or Saudi or Iran, it's, it's repulsive. It's, how could that be ethical under any approach? And if you know enough about, I mean, I know a lot about the Egyptian judiciary and Saudi judiciary, and I can tell you, it's a joke. I mean, people get sentenced to death 
on the testimony of a single person uh, who could be biased left and right in so many ways. People get sentenced to death. You know, so, uh, there's a famous case in Egypt where this um, very, you know, wealthy businessman connected to the government uh, killed a famous uh, singer, murdered her. He was sentenced to death, but because he's wealthy and powerful, the president of Egypt, Sisi, pardoned him. And he's now out of prison and doing business again. How can anyone support the death sentence in a, in a system like that? In, in Saudi Arabia, people are sentenced to death after a hearing that lasts half an hour. I mean, I've known cases where people have been sentenced to death even without the right to present any witnesses. And even in several cases, because I've worked on cases like that with Human Rights Watch, where the attorney representing the defendant was yelled at and not allowed to speak by the judge in the hearing. That's, that's just disgusting and abysmal, and it, it, it's unconscionable. And when, when people try, you know, just ignorantly say, oh, well, you know, in Islam, we support death sentence, well, you know, get an education first. Get an education on how real life works first. Um, what was the middle one? The hard one. <laughs> um, it's how do we, what is the Islamic definition of justice? How do we know when our definition of moral uh, goodness, beauty, and justice is divinely inspired or ignorantly affected by un-Islamic principles? You know, th th that's really, that's a very big topic, but, so I'll answer it in a very incomplete way. Because if I answer it, you know, then we'll, we'll um, it's a very big topic. But the, the, the core, the, the Prophet Islam, sort of introduced us to the, to the core principle of justice, which is, by the way, seeing the same core principle that many philosophers um, have reached, that the, the core of justice is that you is premised on complete empathy, is that you must internalize the position of the other and the treatment that you afford other must be the treatment that you would be willing to be afforded. And, but it, the discipline, because it's very easy to say this, you know, but so take for instance, um, I'm just, um, during um, um, Independence Day, you know, and all, all these uh, fireworks are exploding. And, you know, the dogs are scared because of all the fireworks. Um, of course, I'm deaf, so I can't hear anything, but I can see the reactions of dogs. And you could, you know, it's stressful to keep thinking of all these explosions. And then you think of human beings that we somehow think it's acceptable that their children are raised not with fireworks but with actual bombs exploding all around them in their city any definition of justice 
must be able to address something like this comprehensively. Because if you're not willing to have your children raised, traumatized by violence this way, or the fact that we live in, in neighborhoods while we know that in a place like Camden, is it Camden called in California? Compton. Compton. You know, you can't spend a day without hearing guns being shot. And every time your kid goes, leaves home, a stray bullet could hit them. And yet we live with that as if it's entirely acceptable. Justice, either one can approach it, if one is philosophically trained, he can approach it from, a, from abstract presuppositions that then they think through until they reach a coherent theory of justice. Or if one is not a philosopher, one can study justice through demonstrative examples of clear injustice. So they, they take situations that are glaring in their injustice and educate themselves as to justice in that way. Islam, the Prophet you know, you know the, the golden principle, do unto others as you would like done unto you. And when the Prophet was asked about justice, that's what he said, precisely. But, but to internalize it, that's what's really difficult. Because it's very easy for us to say, yeah, you know, if it was me, I, I, I blah, blah, blah. But most of the time we're lying. Most of the time we're lying. You know, every time we backbite someone, it, if it was us, we don't want to be spoken about this way. You know, uh, this is from the, the ugly field of divorce cases. Um, every really disgusting injustice that I've encountered among divorce couples, which is usually the man, not always, but usually the man is the one who's unjust. And you know, I, I always have that moment where I sit with the man and say, just think, if, if you were the woman, would you like to be treated that way? And you know what? Not once did I get a straightforward answer. They freak out. They, they never, they, they do like cartwheels, not, just not to give me an answer. And that speaks volumes because they know what the answer is, you know? Would you have? Would you have liked to be treated that way? And they don't want to answer. Okay. Well, on that note, thank you again so much for an incredible halakha, alhamdulillah. Um, and thank you for staying with us. The incredible questions. I know we ran long, so thank you for staying with us. And we look forward to hopefully seeing all of you back on Saturday, inshallah. Um, have a wonderful to rest of continued. the week. To be continued. Please keep keep Chef in your prayers. Wonderful to see everybody. And sending lots of love. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.